to go if you still have it. If not, Ed has a few copies. We'll <clears throat> be continuing the study on David living a lie. So turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. I want to thank you for your prayers as we made it back home safely from Arizona. We had a fun time. And as you know, we are now grandparents. Gives new meaning to the song, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your love and goodness towards us. We just think of the psalm we just sang, how it describes your death on the cross and how we are to stand for you. And we just pray, Father, that as we <clears throat> study David, a man after your own heart who fell into grievous sin, that we are not unlike David. We do fall into sin. And Lord, there be someone right here this morning who is living in sin. And you don't know what to do. They're encompassed by the whirlwind of punishment, Father. We sow the wind and we reap the whirlwind. And I just pray, Lord, to find some biblical principles about how you can deliver us from this whirlwind. Because your love and grace and mercy, even though David sinned, you still forgave him. You bestowed upon him your grace and your mercy, which he did not deserve, Lord. Same as we. We don't deserve it as well. Help me, Lord, as I teach your word this morning. Pray we'll be receptive to your word. More importantly, Lord, we'll apply it to our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's quickly, quickly review. There's an interesting story between 1976 and 1986. Mrs. Elias Spinelli had 10 children. Boy, within 10 years, she had 10 children. Wonder why she had so many children. Well, the reason is because in Italy, in 1976, she was sentenced to jail for taking part in a robbery. But under Italian law, a woman cannot be put in jail when she is pregnant. So consequently, she became pregnant and pregnant and pregnant and pregnant and pregnant and pregnant. And, pregnant. and think about it, she kept having children to keep her out of jail. Some people do almost anything to avoid the consequences of their behavior, and David did exactly that. He did all kinds of things to keep from his sin from being found out. So, if we quickly let's go over the outline. <clears throat> we look at the information on the principles of sowing and reaping. There are three main verses we want to talk about. The first one is Hosea 8 7, where you sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The whirlwind is like a tornado. Sowing the sin is sowing seeds. Israel sowed the wind of idolatry. And she reaped the whirlwind of captivity. God punished her. And then also we looked at Proverbs chapter 6, it's 27 through 29, where Solomon asks two rhetorical questions about what happens to a man when he's involved in adultery or fornication. Can a man escape it? No, he cannot. Can I escape the consequences of those sins without suffering dire consequences? In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, we have the principle of sowing and reaping. You only sow a few seeds, but you reap a lot of fruit. The idea here is you sow a few seeds of sin, you're going to reap a lot of consequences of sin. Our tomato plants, we planted them way back in May. 
You want to plant three plants? They're still producing tomatoes. This is the middle of November and they're still producing. I'm surprised. This is the most tomatoes we've ever had. But the, the principle is we sow a few seeds of sin, we're going to reap more than what we bargained for from our sin. Then we looked at the illustration of the principle of sowing and reaping from 1 Samuel chapter 11. We saw David the sinner. His first sin he committed was a sin of adultery. Two factors led to his sin. First was David's laziness. We're told he should have been out the battle, whereas other kings are. But he stayed home instead of being out with his troops, fighting the battles. And this is the continuation of the battles he fought in chapter 10. He should have been there, but he wasn't. The second was David's lust. David committed this sin because he had a passion for sex. To satisfy his passion, he kept adding wives and concubines. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13 tells us that. You think enough would have been enough, but not for David. David's passions were not satisfied. It only increased. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 17, talks about the commands God gave when Israel was to have a king. And the three things he must not do, one of them was multiply wives for himself. And David broke that commandment. And that evening, he's walking on his roof of the house, and he sees a beautiful woman across the street bathing. That was Bathsheba, and his lusts were roused, and that led to the sin of adultery. Then we looked at James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, which talks about temptation. Let's turn there very quickly. James chapter 1, and look at verse 14. Verse 14 shows us the reason for temptation. Each one is tempted when he is carried away by enticed by his own lusts. And David's lusts was for other women that weren't his wife. Satan knows what entices us. He knows what our specific lust is. may not be women, maybe finances. Tempted to cheat, tempted to steal, whatever it might be. Tempted to lie. But Satan knows what it is. And the first part of verse 15 shows the reaction to temptation. When, one has, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Lust was conceived that moment David lusted for Bathsheba in his heart. Jesus tells us just lusting for a woman is committing adultery. Then verse 15, the last part, we see the results. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And it did in more ways than one. Uriah died, other people died, and we're going to see the baby died as well because of sin. The second sin David committed was the sin of deceit. He tries to cover up his adultery, so he begins with this unscrupulous plan. He tells Joab to send Uriah home, Bathsheba's wife, with hopes that he'd go home and have sex with his wife, and then that way it'll cover up David's sin, because by this time Bathsheba's pregnant. But that didn't work. Uriah goes and he sleeps in the tent or in the guardhouse there, or the, the gate place there. He doesn't go back to his wife. And, and David's upset. He says, well, spend the night again. And he doesn't do it. He spends time with his wife again. Then he tries to get him drunk. Maybe in drunken stupor he'll go home with his wife. He still doesn't do it. So we see the plan was unsuccessful. Which leads to David's third sin, the sin of murder. We see the details in verses 14 through 21. First is the treachery. 
David's plans are failings. Now he says, well, i got to get rid of him one way or another, so I'm going to have Joab send him out to the fiercest battle, and hopefully he'll die in battle. That'll solve my problem. So he sends a letter carried by Uriah himself. And the tragedy is, Uriah is placed in the fiercest battle, and he is killed. And the other tragedy is, innocent men die with him. Here we see the consequences of sin. Then we see the deception. Man comes and tells David what happened, that Uriah died, and David replies with a hypocritical consolation. He tells him, in war, your life and death is just blind chance. You know, it's not, job's not your fault, Uriah died. Well, whose fault was it? David's fault. Then look at verse 27. Let's go to our text, chapter 11, verse 27. The last part of that verse was to say the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord or displeased the Lord as the King James has. We see the disapproval of God. David thought he'd gotten away with murder. But he didn't. And we talked about how David was presuming upon God. God delivered him so many times. He went to the land of the Philistines. He shouldn't have been there. God delivered him. When he wanted to kill Nabon and all his servants, God delivered him. Now God says, you presumed upon me too long. Now you're going to suffer the consequences of your sin. And David is. Let's look at David the Sorrowful in chapter 12. Even though David's sins were carried out willfully and secretly, they were not unnoticed by God. Maybe nobody else noticed what was going on. I think Joab had an idea of what was going on. Joab knew David. But God knew what was going on. He's about to confront David with his sins. And God will do that. He will eventually confront you with your sin. After David committed adultery and murder, he spent one year living a life of hypocrisy. Psalm 32 describes that one year of life. Let's look at Psalm 32. He spent a whole year living a life of hypocrisy, as though nothing had happened. Chapter 32, or Psalm 32, the verse four verses, describes what David was going through, what he experienced. He, phys- he experienced physical and emotional pain. Let's look at that. It says, How blessed he whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. See, David wrote this psalm later on after he committed this sin and after he was confronted by Nathan. He started writing a memoir of what his life was like when he committed sin. He's telling everyone else, this is what I went through. When I try to cover up my sin. Verse 2, How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Wasn't David's life full of deceit? He says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as in the fervent heat of summer. Now we know what a warm summer is. Remember we had two weeks of weather up to 100 degrees? We know what it's like to be hot. David's describing living in the desert, being burned up. David is living a lie, and he has sleepless nights, physical illness, and terrible feelings of guilt. God was starting to punish him. Look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51, David writes right after he is confronted by Nathan. Notice how he describes his life, Psalm 51. 
He's aware of his sin. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Here David is begging God to cleanse him from his sin. So he's aware of it. Look at verse 11. He's afraid to lose God's presence. Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Because that's what God did to Saul in punishment for some of Saul's sins. God took away the Holy Spirit. See, now within believers, let the Holy Spirit dwells permanently. But in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon certain people for certain times and left. And here David's pleading with God, don't take your spirit from me like you did Saul. Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. He lost his joy. Even though David thought he got away with murder, he was still experiencing the guilt of his sin. God is beginning to grind justice, you know, the wills of justice. So David's conscience is bothering him. One person said this, there's no witness so dreadful, no accuser so terrible as the conscience that dwells in the heart of every man. And God does that. Some people handle their guilt a wrong way. You know all their cars would get those warning lights? Check the engine. What happens if you ignore that light? You're going to check the engine. Eventually, it's going to be blown up. But some people, you know, they figure, i got to solve the problem. Instead of fixing the engine, I'll just bash out the light. They get a little hammer, and they bash out that light. There, solve that problem. And what happens? The car breaks. It stops. And we wonder why. Many Christians carry imaginary hammers in the glove compartments of their conscience. And they bring it every once in a while, and they smash that warning light that God's telling us. The Spirit convicts us. And what happens? Their spiritual motor burns up. Why are there so many Christians, supposedly Christians in the world, that have no desire to go to church, no desire to read the Word, no desire to do anything? Because they smash that little light of conscience in their mind. Their spiritual motor is burning up. See, a carnal Christian pretends that everything's all right. But down deep inside, they're miserable. They're experiencing what David writes about in Psalm 32. But they will ignore it and suffer the consequences for it. They're too stubborn to give in to God. But a spiritual Christian will realize what they've done wrong and will confess their sins. So let's look at this chapter. Notice their confrontation, verses 1 through 12, and especially the illustration. Nathan comes to talk to David. He uses an illustration of shepherding. Now, David was a shepherd, right? David could identify with this story. Let's read it. Then, see the word then? It shows God's providence. At an appointed time, God said, now it's time to confront David with his sin. And there's going to be a then in your life if you're hiding from sin. If you're trying to conceal sin, there's going to come a day in your life and God's going to say, then it's time for me to confront you. I've given you all this time to confess, repent of your sins. Now I'm going to to take action. God's about to take action. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There are two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. That's a female lamb. 
which he brought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Interesting thing is, why did anyone else confront David? I think Joab probably knew what was going on, but he didn't. Some people think that a person's private life is their own business. You know, we experienced that with Bill Clinton, all his escapades. And what do people say? Hey, the economy's great. What matter does it matter the president's fooling around the White House? He's not the first one. I'm making money. The economy's doing good, so why should we worry about it? Many people thought that way about David. My point is, if you can deceive people about your morality, aren't you going to deceive people in other important areas? And sometime after the birth of Bathsheba's son, the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to confront David. Why did God wait a year? Why didn't he confront him right away? No one knows. Only God knows. God knows why he does what he does. One person said this, God wanted the grinding wheels of guilt to do their full work before he stepped in. And God will eventually step in. I often wonder why God waits so long. Another commentary said this, God not only does the right thing, he does the right thing at the right time. God's wills grind slowly, but they do grind exceedingly fine. Isn't it interesting when someone else is sinning, we say, God, step in and get them? Except when we're sinning, we're sinning, God, wait a while. We're so quick to punish someone else, aren't we? Right? When it comes to ourselves, you know, we're kind of slow. David's kind of slow here. As you can see, as you read on, he's quick to condemn this traveler, isn't he? Very quick. Think about it. God always seeks us out. God sought out Moses in Exodus chapter 3. God sought out Elijah in 1 Kings 19. God sought out Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. God sought out Peter after he denied the Lord three times. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 tells us that. See, God always does the seeking. He will step into your life just at the right time when you need it. Now, Nathan doesn't burst in and cute David and shouting accusations at him. See, God wants David restored, not destroyed. The purpose of confrontation is restoration. What good is it to punish someone if they're going to be destroyed? You want them to be restored. That's God's purpose. So we get the idea of this story here. The rich man is David. The poor man with one lamb is Uriah. The lamb is Bathsheba. The traveler is temptation. Travels in our lives. Every day, temptation is traveling through our lives. Notice indignation in verse 5. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who had done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. That's what the Old Testament taught. 
This man should have been given four new lambs to replace the one lamb he lost. All right? Because this, he did this thing and had no compassion. David's furious. He's mad. He says, the man deserves to die. He needs to pay back the farmer four times. But think about it. The penalty for stealing was not death. The penalty for stealing, according to Exodus 22.1, is making restitution. Pay back four times what you lost. So you lose $100, the guy should pay you back $400. This is God's principle. Here we see David is slow to confess his sinfulness, but he's quick to condemn another person of their sin. And again, we're just like that. We're quick to condemn. But notice the identification, verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives, and to your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If they have been too little, I have added to you many more things like these. Nathan tells David, you're the rich man in the story. God gave you everything. Think about the four things he gave him. God gave David a position. I gave you the kingship. I gave you protection. I protect you from Saul. I gave you possessions. I gave you all his wives and many more. I gave you power. And I would have given you more, David, if you just would have asked. But you decided to steal someone else's wife. See, David had taken, as it were, the man's pet lamb for himself. See, Nathan helped David see what he, who he really was. And what was David? An adulterer, a liar, a thief, and a murderer. And he deserves to die. David despised God's word, it says in verse 9. Let's look at there. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Despised. That word means to treat with contempt. Anytime we sin, we despise God. So we know what God's word says, thou shalt not, and we do it anyhow. We're despising God's word. It's open rebellion against God. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David's identified as the sinner. Notice the imprecation. The word imprecation means a curse, and God bestows a curse upon David and his family. As punishment for his sin, David is condemned by the Lord to have trouble in his family for the rest of his life. First thing is death. The sword shall never depart from your house. Not the nation. Your home, David. Death is going to be in your home forever. You're going to be plagued with death. Also defiance. Thus says the Lord, behold, I'll raise up evil against you from your own household. Your children are going to despise you. They're going to defy you. Same way you defied me, David, your sons are going to defy you. What else? I'll even take your wives from before you and give them to your companion. Here we see defilement. Same way you defiled Bathsheba. I'm going to have your own wives defiled. Then we see disclosure here. 
and he shall lie with you wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, David. This is going to be done publicly. And this was done with Absalom when he usurped David. And he, and he put up a big tent on top of the house there so everybody could see. So David's wives would be taken from him and Bathsheba had been taken from Uriah. And all these curses were fulfilled by David's own sons. Notice interestingly, almost every time we read the phrase about Bathsheba, how is she described? Look at verse 10. You have taken the wife of Uriah to be the Hittite. Most of the time, Bathsheba is described as the wife of Uriah in the scriptures, even in Matthew. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, 11 verse 26, 12 verse 10, 12 verse 15, Matthew 1, 6. In God's eyes, she's still Uriah's wife. There's only one exception. It's found in verse 24. It says, and David comforted his wife Bathsheba. As far as I know, that's the only exception of when Bathsheba is named and she's not called the wife of Uriah. David's sons caused all kinds of trouble. Think about it. David lost four sons. I mean, it's terrible to lose one child, right? Your parents, you've suffered the loss of a child, he knows what it means. David's going to lose four of them in his lifetime. The first child of Bathsheba is going to die. Ammon is going to be murdered by Absalom because he rapes David's other sister or daughter, Tamar. Absalom usurps David's throne and he is killed by Joab. And Adjaniah wants to take over the throne before Samuel does, or Solomon does, and he is killed. All in David's lifetime. Even David's son Solomon is going to follow in his father's footsteps and disobey God and take for himself a bunch of wives that will lead him from God. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells that story. God forgave David and spared his life, but didn't he pay a horrible price? And usually just for a moment of pleasure, one night of pleasure, a few hours. David's forgiven, but the consequences are still there. And notice how other innocent people suffer. Usually it's our family. When we fall into sin, our family suffers. God's disciplines mean to correct David, not to punish him. When God punishes us for our sin, it's to show us how serious sin is to, against the holy God. God says, I hate sin. And when you sin, you're to the front to me. So I'm going to do the best I can to keep you from committing further sin. Don't we do that to our children because we love them? We want to keep them from doing harm for themselves so we discipline them when they're young? One person said this, God imposes a penalty upon us, not to punish us for past sins, but to correct us against future sins. When we make a mistake, we realize, boy, that's a dumb thing to do. I'll make sure I never do that again. Then if we do it, no, how foolish are me, right? And a family who is in trouble is a common occurrence in America today, right? Name a family who doesn't have troubles. Every family has troubles. 
Now, as usually, troubles come from within and without. Your troubles from without would be like you lose a, uh, a job, you lose some income, you know, lose a loved one. Sometimes it has a tendency to destroy families. It usually draws families together and they get outside troubles. But inward troubles can tear a family apart. You know, when there's sin, when the parent commits sin or the children commit sin, it starts to tear the family apart. There's tension, there's pressures, there's anger, there's neglect, there's bitterness, there's unforgiveness. And all these troubles come into life because of foolish decisions made by parents or children. They know they're not supposed to do that, but they do it anyhow, and then it comes the consequences of sin, and families are blown apart. And when there's friction in the house, whether between the husband and the wife, or between the parents and the child, boy, there's trouble. It's all because we make foolish decisions. We know we are not to do that. David knew he wasn't to commit adultery. And he even tells us in Deuteronomy, the king was to take for himself the law and copy, make a copy for himself. I'm sure David did that. I'm sure he wrote the, the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. He knew what he was doing. So trouble comes when we disobey God. That's why it's so important for us to obey God. Notice the confession, verse 13. Let's start verse 12. Again, we see part of the disclosure. Indeed, he did it in secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel under the sun. You read Agatha Christie's novel, Evil Under the Sun? Well, it comes from this verse, Evil Under the Sun. Then David said, Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses his sin. He says, I did it against God. Psalm 51, 4 says the same thing. He broke God's law. He accepts full responsibility. Knows what David doesn't do. He doesn't give excuses, doesn't give denials, doesn't rationalize or blame others. Think about it. When Adam sinned, who did he blame? Eve. And really God. The woman, you gave me God, you know. If I chose my blonde, you know, that's never what happened. But you gave me the brunette, right? Now I'm in trouble. No, that never happened. It's not in Scripture. Okay. When Abraham sinned, when he went to Egypt, who did he blame? He blamed his circumstances. Now, I'm in Egypt here, and they're going to not like the idea that you know, we're married because you're still good looking. So they're going to kill me and take you. So let's just tell a little white lie because you are really my half-sister. You know, he does it once, he does it twice, Right? And we often blame our circumstances. Who does Aaron blame when he makes the golden calf? The people told me to do this, and I just threw this gold into this pot, and out came this calf. Lo and behold, I didn't do nothing. This calf just appeared out of nowhere. Yeah, magic. Or really, it's probably God. See, God created this, this calf for me, you know. When Saul committed sin, who did he blame? Remember, he was in chapter 15, he's supposed to destroy the Amalekites. He doesn't. Because the people wanted to keep the calves for sacrifice. Even before that, Samuel tells him, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. You're going to go to battle, and before you do, I'm going to offer sacrifices for you. Saul is 
waiting for Samuel. Samuel was late, so Saul offers the sacrifices himself. And who does he blame? Samuel. Samuel, you've been here on time. This never would have happened. And oftentimes we have a lot of excuses we give. One is rationalization. Imagine David could have said, what's one sin compared to a lifetime of good living? Where everybody makes mistakes, you know, God will understand. God's a God of love, right? Or shifting blame. It's all Bathsheba's fault. She hadn't been taking that bath. That never would have seen her, or never would have fallen for her, and never would have happened. It's all Bathsheba's fault. Or justifying. You know, Bathsheba probably wasn't really happy with Uriah. Actually, getting rid of him is probably the best thing I could have done for her. Or making excuses. You know, I was really depressed when it happened. You know, I, I, you know, I was just really depressed, discouraged. Everybody's off the wall. All my friends are gone. Or skirting the issue. Boy, what I do was nothing compared to what Saul did. And we do that. We always compare our sins to someone else. Or legitimizing. Hey, man, most people at least have one affair during their lifetime, right? It's normal. Everyone cheats on their spouses. How about intellectualizing? You know, how does anyone know what's right or wrong? Maybe wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. That's the prevailing one in the world today, you know. The sad thing is, David confesses after he is confronted. He didn't openly confess his sins. Do you think life would have been a whole lot different if David would have confessed his sin before Nathan came to see him? I sort of think so. Maybe the baby might not have died. Who knows? We don't know. See, Nathan tells David that God has forgiven him. Notice that. Verse 13. Nathan said to David, The Lord has also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. God's going to be gracious for you, David. You're not going to die. Death is required for committing adultery and for murder. Both those crimes are punished by death. Look at, look at Psalm 86 5. <clears throat> Psalm 86 5. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. Isn't that a great verse? God is always ready to forgive us. But for whatever reason, selfishness, sinfulness, we don't confess our sins and, for, and repent of them. It says, God had taken away David's sin or put away David's sin. God has taken away David's sin, but he did not take away the consequences for David's sin. Exodus 12, or 21 12, tells us the penalty for adultery and murder is death. So does Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Leviticus 24, 17. Deuteronomy 22, 22. All of these speak of the death penalty. David is released from the required death penalty by God. David, you're not going to die. So David didn't get what he deserved, did he? 
Look at Psalm 103, verse 10. Psalm 103, verse 10. <clears throat> David writes this psalm and says, and some people think Psalm 103 is connected with David's sin as well. It says, He as God has not dealt with us according to our sins. God did not deal with David according to his sin. God forgave him. Wow. That's what God does to all of us. We don't deserve it. But Christ died on the cross for us to take away our sins. We need to thank God for what he has not done. A lot of times we thank God for what he does do in our lives. Maybe sometimes we ought to think about what God has not done in our lives. The times we've failed him, the times we've done things we shouldn't have done, and then God has not punished us according to what we deserve. He spares us. So this Thanksgiving season, let's not just be thankful for what God has done in our lives, let's be thankful for what he has spared us from in our lives. Isn't that true? We really don't know what God might have done. Wow. Now how do we know David's confession was genuine? A lot of people are sore because they get caught. You know, you all have experienced that from some other people. You know, they're sorry they got caught. There's a little girl when we were teaching school in New York outside of Buffalo. And she got pregnant. And she was all confessing, sorry for it and all that stuff. A few months later, after the baby was born, she went off and got pregnant again from a different guy. So was she really sorry for what she did? No, she was sorry she got caught. Let's go to Psalm 51. How do we know David's confession was genuine? Well, remember, Psalm 51 is written after David was confronted by Nathan. And he got right with God. There's sort of four principles we find here to help identify what true repentance is. Verse 4, against thee, thee only I have sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless then, or when thou dost judge. Here we see there will be open, unguarded admission. David says, I have sinned. It's not anyone else's fault. It's my fault. I have done wrong. Look at verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Here's a desire to make complete break from sin. And God created a clean heart in me. The old heart's defective. Remember what we said about David? Man after God's own heart. David says, God, I need a new heart. This heart's not following me like it was, had been. I need to change. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou will not despise. Here you see, we need a broken, humbled heart. David was grieved over what he'd done. Boy, I really blew it. Man, what I did was wrong, Lord. Number four, find verse 12. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit, claiming God's forgiveness and restoration. David says, you know, Lord, God, give me the joy I had and give me a willing spirit to serve you, to obey you. So repentance is not just saying, Lord, I'm sorry. It's changing our lives. I'm not going to do that anymore. Lord, give me the desire to do what's right. 
Warren Wiersbe says this in its commentary. He says, God in his grace had forgiven David's sin. God in his government had not permitted David to experience the consequences of those sins. Beginning with the death of Bathsheba's baby. All during David's months of silence, he had suffered intensely. As you can detect when you read his two prayers of confession, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Psalm 32 pictures a sick old man instead of a virile, virile warrior. And Psalm 51 describes a believer who had lost almost everything. His purity, joy, witness, wisdom, and peace. A man who was afraid of God, that would take his Holy Spirit from him as he had done to Saul. David went through intense emotional and physical pain, but he left behind two prayers that are precious to all believers who have sinned. And that's so true. David describes his life, what it was like before he confessed it, and now everything's getting better. So repentance involves four things. Getting your sin out into the open, confessing it. Asking for forgiveness is number two. Three is restoring your relationship with God and others you may have offended. And number four is paying restitution. Look at verse 14, the consequence. However, wow, that's a big however, isn't it? Think David's feeling kind of good now after verse 13? I'm going to be spared. God's going to let me live. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Wow. There are consequences, aren't there? Not just what's going to happen to David's family. David gave occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David's testimony was, ruined his testimony. His sin ruined his testimony. And we experienced that. Those of us who were around in the 80s and 90s when Jimmy Baker and, and um, who's the other guy? Thank you. I mean, it, in fact, it's a black mark in all Christianity, wasn't it? Because those guys were big on TV. Everybody knew them. And Christianity became a big joke. Another result is the child is going to die. See, the sin of adultery and murder had to be punished. But why did the baby die? What did the baby do to deserve death? Is nothing. And we can never understand that Scripture doesn't tell us why God allowed this to happen. We'll never know until we get to heaven. And we still may not know. God in his wisdom. But it shows us a principle. Often the innocent suffer because of our selfish and sinful choices. A lot of innocent children and people are suffering because of man and women's sin. Just think of David and Bathsheba taking a moment to consider the consequences of their adultery. They might have thought, boy, I better control my desires. I better think twice. David knew that there would be consequences. But he also knew that God had forgiven him. Just think if David had never confessed his sin. Our history might have been different. 
1 John 1 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he will forgive us, right? 1 John 1 9 would say, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He promises to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness, but he doesn't promise to relieve us of all and any consequences. Sometimes God does. And sometimes he doesn't. Chuck Swindoll gave this an incomplete list of what we have in store for us if we're involved in morality. Number one, your mate will experience the anguish of betrayal, shame, rejection, heartache, and loneliness. No amount of repentance will soften the blows. You can say, I'm sorry, so many times, and it just doesn't work. When you hurt your mate like that, I'm sorry, it just doesn't cut it. Like I'm gone with the wind. Rhett's leaving Scarlet. Scarlet says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And what does Rhett say? What good is it? Too much has happened. You think a simple sorry is going to erase the past? That's sort of the quote, you know, Sanders' quote of what Bettler said, you know. But that's basically it. You think you can erase the past by just simply saying, I'm sorry? Your mate can never again say that you are a model of fidelity. Suspicion will rob him or her of trust. Your mate will never trust you again. Three, your escapade or escapades will introduce to your life and your mate's life the very real probability of a sexually transmitted disease. The total devastation your sinful actions will bring to your children is immeasurable. Their growth, innocence, trust, and healthy outlook on life will be severely and permanently damaged. The heartache you will cause your parents, your family, your peers, and your church is indescribable. The embarrassment of facing other Christians who once appreciated you, respected you, and trusted you will be overwhelming. And I've heard pastors, you know, you go off and they run off with their secretary and they get to the hotel room and they wonder, what am I going to do now? Sell cars? I <laughs> that's what they do. It's overwhelming, the embarrassment. Another one, if you are engaged in the Lord's work, you will suffer immediate loss of your job and the support of those whom you have worked, with whom you have worked. Dark shadows will accompany you everywhere and forever. Forgiveness will not erase it. That's right. Forgiveness just doesn't erase the past. Your fall will give others license to do the same. Well, if so-and-so did it, then I can do it. I've told you a story before. This guy, he's <clears throat> a pastor in Toledo, ran off with the secretary. A few years later, he confessed his sins, repented of them, wanted to get back into the ministry, got back with his wife, went to Newhall, California. Within a year or so, committed the same sin with another secretary. The problem was the people in the church was ready to forgive him and keep him as his pastor. Until the assistant pastor stood up and said, no, you guys cannot do that. This man has failed in the ministry twice. You're going to give him another chance? There are consequences for your sin. And if you rehire this guy, I'm leaving, and so is other pastoral staff. Wisdom prevailed, and they didn't rehire this guy. I, I knew him. I mean, so I was up in Lancaster when all this was going on. Your inner peace you once enjoyed will be gone. 
You will never be able to erase the fall from your, your and others' mind. This will remain indelibly and etched on your life's wreck regardless of your later return to your senses. It's always going to be back there. Then finally, probably the most important one, the name of Jesus Christ, whom you once honored, will be tarnished, giving the enemies of the faith further reasons to sneer and jeer. The worst thing that happens is we, we give occasion for the enemies of the God to blaspheme. Now we're going to stop there. We'll pick this up the day after the th- week of Thanksgiving. I've got a Thanksgiving message for next week, and we'll pick this up the following week. So don't lose this outline. Put it someplace safe. Like where you keep your money or something, you know, that's always safe, right? But we'll come back to that. But the consequences of sin. Think if David had a chance to look back on it, he'd probably say, boy, I wish I'd never done that. I mean, we all do that. I do that. I've done some really dumb, stupid things. I say, boy, I wish I'd never done that. I wish I could go back in time and not say what I said or did what I did. I think we all wish that, right? But if I could... Go back and, and rectify this. No, we can't do that. But in the future, we can still use common sense, right? And when we're finding ourselves in a situation, we need to think about it and say, how is this going to hurt me and my family and my God? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and for David's testimony. Lord, one of the main things we saw today was your grace and mercy. You don't deserve it. David didn't deserve it. But you bestowed it upon him as well, Lord. And we just thank you for your grace and mercy. And I pray if there's a person here who doesn't know you as their Savior, that today will be a day of salvation for him, Father. They'll confess your sins and accept your grace and mercy. And I pray for that person who may be involved in sin at this moment. We don't know, Lord, you do. I'm not saying there is, but you know our hearts, Father. And I pray, Lord, we'll confess that sin and we'll forsake that sin before any terrible consequences may begin in our lives. Lord, we thank you for, again, our salvation. Thank you for each one of us here. I pray, Lord, you give us the opportunity to be a testimony for you. That will invite some of our friends and neighbors to our Thanksgiving dinner next Sunday night, or Sunday afternoon, Lord. Then we give testimony about how you were working your life. Lord, give us the opportunity to be a witness this week for you and praise you for what you're doing in our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to sing The Savior is Waiting. Remember we read in Psalm 86? God always forgives. He's always waiting. Let's sing.
That's so true. God would prefer it if we confess it and bring him into his life until it comes to the point where we make him where he has to step in. Tonight we'll be doing Daniel chapter 9, so bring your notebooks and we'll be continuing that study in Daniel chapter 9. Hope you come back tonight. Don't forget prayer meeting next week. And next Sunday is the Thanksgiving dinner. Please sign up and come and bring something. Dave, dismiss us, if you would, please.